before you know it, you'll have so many things to say that you're grateful for because you'll be mm-hmm. tuning yourself to notice the way that the light enters your bedroom and you'll mm-hmm. be paying attention. And so I think so often it's easy to become a sleepwalker in our life where we're just mm-hmm. rushing through things. So just having those moments to pause and say, what is beautiful right here and right now is, is really transformative. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarko.com. So I'm really delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Kayleen Asbo who has been described as a cultural historian who has weaved together mythology, psychology, music, literature, and poetry, all as different expressions of the quest for what it means to be really human. You're very welcome, Kayleen. I'm delighted to be with you. Kayleen, can we start our conversation by looking back? And, you know, where did your evident curiosity and love of learning all come from? Well, I think that I was one of those children who lived so much in my imagination. I actually had um, a pretty difficult first few years um, with some um, deep sorrow in my own family. And I retreated into books, into the world of books and music. And they gave me great solace and nourishment and um, guides, I would say, to find my way through quite a lot of sorrow. And um, what happened? Well, my parents were divorced by the time I was two. And it was a very, very difficult and contentious divorce. And they were um, about as opposite as two human beings could possibly be. Um, And so going back and forth between these worlds that were so difficult and so at odds with one another, um, was quite incomprehensible to a two-year-old child. Um, and I, but I found in, especially first in music and, and, and then in reading and becoming a voracious reader, um, I found the companions that helped guide me towards hope and light and a different view of the world. So it was really, um, it was really by connecting to that imagination that um, lit me on fire um, with a hunger to learn. Um, my father was an itinerant artist, a, a gypsy, but he also had a deep love of learning. And he probably read three or four books a week. And that was the one thing about him that um, where I could really be nourished in my relationship with him was about talking about ideas and talking about art. And so in some ways, there's a way of connecting to him and in the only really good way to connect with him, that became a bridge for the nine months of the year that I wouldn't see him um, and ha- or have any contact. But I would know that if I read all these books as a child, you know, that when we got together, we'd be able to have these deep, meaningful conversations. And that was deeply important to me. Obviously, your your love of learning and your your passion and purpose for you know, healing in the world has grown enormously since then. You mentioned music, 
Kayleen, that was clearly your first love. Yeah, it was. Um, I had this dream um, when I was two, actually. It's, it was a very profound dream. I was cr- I, In the dream, I was crawling to a piano, and I knew that if I, I got to the piano, I would live, and if I didn't, I would die. And while that sounds extreme, it, I think it actually carries a deep psychological truth that music is what gave me hope and light. And I remember um, the first concert I went to as an eight-year-old child, um, I was I was given tickets to go hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And I just had tears pouring down my face. And that stirring end for anybody who knows that symphony, um, it lifts you up in the most extraordinary way. And I think Beethoven was able to put in his music and in his notes his own capacity for courage and resilience. And mm. when you hear that transformation from the darkness and doom of what has been characterized as the fate motif in the beginning of yep up up bum a fate knocking at the door, which we know from his journals, you know, this was this was his symbolic reputation of deafness overwhelming him. And then it shifts by the end of that symphony. And you have this extraordinary moment where after what seems like utter annihilation and defeat, the symphony begins to lift itself up from the ground and assert its will to live. And that last movement carries us on this journey towards blinding, brilliant light in which the darkness of C minor is transformed into a majesty and power of triumphant C major key. And I didn't know those words when I was eight, sitting in the darkened audience. All I knew is that there was this seed of resilience, this this light that felt like it had been passed to me by Beethoven. And I held on to that during all the rest of my turbulent adolescence. And every time I would feel a sense of of profound despair, I would put on that LP back in the days when there were actual records. And I would lay in the dark and I would listen to that symphony and it would lead me to resolve to try again, to find a way and to have in my mind if Beethoven suffering from child abuse and an alcoholic father and then incredible physical pain and disease could find a way to transform his agony into beauty, then maybe there was a way that I could find to also transform my heart's sorrow into something of meaning. So Beethoven was my first hero. He taught me viscerally in this deeply embodied sense through his music about that journey from darkness to light, of despair to hope, of tragedy to triumph. And I feel like he really laid the groundwork um, and is the foundation um, of my life's journey. You know, that fifth symphony that I first heard um, was really the touchstone of everything I've learned ever since. In a way, Kayleen, you're describing, in a way, the hero's journey, you know, the the hero who goes through the dark times, uh, Joseph Campbell, the long night of the soul, uh, but who emerges with a new sense of perspective and meaning uh, and moves towards the light and a more optimistic future. Absolutely. I, I've taught a course on Beethoven as the hero's journey for places like the University of California at Berkeley and Dominican University. And it's it's one of the best examples I know. And you can look at his entire life and it it actually has two heroes journey. That the one the first part that's the outer conquering hero who goes from abused child to triumphant figure on the world stage. But then there's another second part of his journey that I think is even more important for people after midlife which is a journey towards simplicity and surrender and acceptance Mm -hmm. in the midst of heartbreak of our own personal failings, not battling against outward demons, but what is it to reconcile ourselves to our own mistakes? And that's that's the second part of his life's journey that's equally um, profound. And um, one of the things I didn't know um, I, I fell in love with Beethoven as, as an eight-year-old, actually five year old, five years when I first heard the symphony on the radio, but then eight at that concert. And then as a t- troubled teenager, I fell in love with uh, the poet T.S. Eliot. 
And um, his last poem, Little Gidding, um, the last poem of the four quartets, was almost like an incantation. I, I just would read it over and over and over. And the beauty of that poem um, lured me back to life during a time of, of truly suicidal despair as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know it at the time. Um, it took me decades to discover this, but Eliot actually wrote that poem during his Dark Night of the Soul, listening to the late Beethoven string quartets and vowing that he was going to find some way to put what Beethoven did in his string quartets into words. And that's why those pieces are called the four quartets, is they're modeled after Beethoven. So I, I think of this as like this caravan of light that gets passed down, you know. And so Beethoven passes his light through music to T.S. Eliot, who then takes that light and transforms it into words. And they both meet in my life, you know, in a tent as a runaway 16-year-old reading the four quartets, but having already been fed by Beethoven. And that those were really coming from this place. And I think that that's, you know, one of the most important things is there's this saying that was found in a cave in Nag Hammadi from these ancient texts that were rediscovered in, in 1945. And the saying is, if you bring forth what is inside of you, what is inside of you will save you. And if you don't bring forth what is inside of you, what is inside of you will destroy you. And I think that that's so true for for the hero and especially for the artistic hero. And in this case, you know, absolutely for Beethoven. If Beethoven hadn't had music, he would have probably succumbed to his anger, his rage, his mis, you know, his misanthropy that he had inherited from being an abused child of an alcoholic father who is crippled utterly by disease. But he had the courage to take every part of his experience, including the anger, the fear, the terror, and the grief, and to turn it into music. T.S. Eliot similarly took his anger, grief, and sorrow and turned that into poetry. And I think that those stories of the people throughout the centuries who've done that, who have not inflicted their, their pain and suffering on others outwardly, but used an artistic medium and some creative action to to bring it out um, are my real heroes and heroines that um, have lit my way. And I think that's most of, one of the most important things that we can do in the world right now as we're all suffering from so much fear and loss and grief. Mm. Is, is not to hold it privately and or cut ourselves off from that. You know, um, the poet Rilke says, how human beings squander their pain, but rather to take that pain almost as compost, if, to use a natural analogy, to feed mm-hmm. the roots. And when you take that and you have a practice and or many practices, I have many practices that I do to do this, but that you you use your practice to meet your pain. I almost want to use the word magical, but I'll, I'll use the word something transformative happens. And just as Beethoven's rage was transformed into the Fifth Symphony or Rilke's broken heart was transformed into the sonnets of Orpheus or Artemisia Gentileschi's rage was transformed into this incredible painting or Bougereau's loss and lamentation of the death of his son turned into these heart-rending canvases. Um, that when you do that, it not only helps you, it actually feeds the world. It actually becomes something that can help the world around you find their strength and their courage and their resilience. And that's what I give my life to, is telling those stories of the people who've done just that. Because I owe the deepest, profoundest debt of gratitude um, to the mm. ones who kept me alive during my dark times through the beauty of what they created by honoring the truth of what lived in them. Beautiful. I mean, I love I love what you said about the second part of life being about surrender, simplicity and and acceptance. And of course, you are so right. Everyone experiences pain in this world. Everybody suffers. But I think there is a great opportunity to, as you say, to transform and grow from your experiences 
and develop a new sense of perspective and meaning and a new sense of who you are in the world. Kayleen, would you like to share, because obviously you've spent many years studying, you know, the kind of, as you would say, the role models for people that have really transformed their pain and suffering into something positive and light and hope in the world. Would you like to share some of these practices that you've found to be of benefit, maybe in your own life and in in people that you've spoken to and worked with? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think that one of the most important practices and and certainly many of the world's spiritual traditions affirm this as well as modern psychology is is to turn our hearts to gratitude Mm. and to really focus you know the brain and the way the brain works as i understand it you know we can be very sticky with the negative and it's very easy Mm. for the positive things to sort of slip through our fingers as i say the negative is like is like Velcro, it sticks to you, whereas the positive is like Teflon, it blows away, it's so fleeting. <laughs> exactly. And so there, there's two practices um, that I've used pretty faithfully almost every day for the past few years, especially during pandemic times that I found to be really helpful and really simple. Because, you know, I think one of the things that many people think is, oh, I don't have, you know, an hour to do something because I have such a busy life or I don't even have 20 minutes to meditate. So here's something that's an incredibly easy practice that will only take 10 seconds each day. And that's, um, it's it's done with my iPhone. And it's cultivating uh, an attention that I will be stay alert for a moment that in the platonic tradition is good, beautiful or true. And I will take a picture of that. And so each and every day, like if there's something that I think this was a good moment, whether it's a beautiful sunrise or Mm. stumbling upon the first iris that's emerging, as I found yesterday in this forest, I was walking through these wild irises or a friend comes over and we have lunch, you know, that any of those moments, it's like a practice of paying attention where I say, ah, ah, here it is. Here's this moment of goodness or truth or beauty. And I take a picture of it. And then at the end of, you know, at the end of each week, I will go through that library. And it's amazing, like how often those moments can slip through our fingers. Um, mm. And so when you go back and you see it, you go, oh, yes, oh, yes, that's right. I, that the, the mind can say, oh, this was such a horrible week. You know, there was the invasion of the Ukraine. There was this horrific thing that happened, this illness in my family. And we can be overwhelmed with the tragedy and we'll lose like, but, but there was also the white egret that I saw in flight on my, my mm. walk through the, you know, there was also this beautiful meal that a friend made for me. There was also, you know, this hummingbird that came to my bird feeder. And so when you see the pictures of, of the beautiful and the good, it just reminds you that there's that too woven in with the darkness of each day that might be here. There are also the threads of light. If you wanted to take that further, and I think it's a great practice to do that, you know, to keep a gratitude journal and at each day, you know, just just give it doesn't have to be fancy, you know, as as uh, the great American poet Mary Oliver said, you know, it doesn't have to be wild irises. It's just it's a doorway into thanks, you know, so what 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 were you thankful for this day? You know, what what are you grateful for? And it can be very simple, but but saying that, naming that, writing that down is important. And if you wanted to go further, you could turn it into a poem or you could turn it into a song. Um, and those are some of my, my practices. And you're a wonderful poet and I've read some of your poetry and I'd encourage anyone listening to this podcast to check out Kayleen's poetry. It really is inspirational. I couldn't agree with you more about the gratitude practice. I mean, I think it really moves you from your head into your heart. It's something I recommend routinely uh, to patients as a way to dissolve toxic stress, alleviate anxiety, boost well-being, build up your emotional bank account, um, just focusing on what's going well. And I love how you described capturing, um, you know, the moments, the positive moments, capturing those beautiful uh, incidental moments in nature. And, uh, And then I think what what's really interesting is that you then replay those moments at the end of the week, you look back, what was the good in the week? You, you choose to focus 
on the good, on the positive, yeah. and sort of re reimagine those moments, relive those moments, savor the moments, as it were. And that does, of course, build positivity for you, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I also started using the practice of, you know, even social media of only practice, if you use it as a practice to post the images of what you have said, then at the end of the year, there's this, you know, collection, you can even make a photo album of it, you know, and order it very, very inexpensively. So you have, this is the document of the good that I have known. Um, the other practice I would really recommend for people that I took on last year um, is the making of gratitude mandalas as I walk through nature. And these can be very, very simple. I was actually inspired by Hildegard of Bingen and Carl Jung, the great Swiss depth psychologist, who both use, who both created these uh, quite amazing mandalas. Um, and for Jung, he was using it when he was an ambulance driver during the World War. And he found that by drawing mandalas, it was something that helped calm his, his very anxious system. And I think there's plenty of research you probably know even more than I do about the benefits of this, about how it balances the two hemispheres of the brain, that having geometrical patterns of symmetry and order and balance can lead to a feeling of calmness and, and greater equanimity. So knowing that um, on my walks, I, I, um, I started to gather things together to create nature mandalas and i think you're going to put a couple of the the images of this up on the website for people to see it can be an extremely simple practice and you, you just it's just another way of being grateful so um i took on and created this 40-day practice for myself last year where each day i would think of someone that i was grateful for in the world and I would gather stones, acorns, fallen leaves, flower petals. And while I was thinking of them, I became a focus of meditation where I would create a mandala for them in gratitude that this was someone, some of them are my teachers, some of them are my friends, you know, my daughter. Um, and then I'd take a picture of that and I would send it to them and say, you know, I was thinking of you and so grateful for your presence in my life and send them the thank you. And then there would be an image that was there. And it, it did two things, you know, it really brought me back into that place of gratitude for for the gifts that I have, the people that I have in my life. Um, but also the very act of collecting things as a great teacher. So, you know, it it it's not that you, like, if you have the eyes to see it, you know, one of my favorite mandalas that will be one of the images is something that most people think of as a weed in California where I live. It's um, called oxalis sourgrass, and it's a, a yellow flower that grows rampant. And most people, gardeners are like, ah, we've got to get rid of this. This is a weed. And I wanted to transform my way of seeing, of being able to see beauty. So I created a mandala um, that was actually of this sour grass and i'll just show you right here so that you can see this was it oh beautiful and so these were just things that in my own yard were thought to be you know um just debris you know the fallen acorns the rocks the pebbles and then this weed this oxalis but um it became a doorway for me to see beauty that's right here if i shift my way of seeing and I think that that's one of the most important things for us in our journey right now in the world is we have to develop new pathways of seeing beauty. We have to open to being able to see possibilities instead of seeing what's wrong, to be able to see what is potential, what is, what can, if we reframe it, if we, if we, this is what music does so beautifully, you know, it takes a group of notes and then it creates a container that that even dissonance can transform into profound beauty. And so this was the, one of the simplest and most gratifying practices that I did was to, and I gave myself a time limit each day, 15 minutes, that's all, you know. It's, and so mm -hmm. to be able to take things and to do them as a way of thinking of somebody, each one of these mandalas that you see was um, a creation of thank you to someone that somehow was connected to their story and their spirit. Um, going to a beach and gathering seashells. Again, this one has also that those yellow oxalis 
quote unquote weeds. And then I even extended it um, in my um, home to being grateful, you know, just for food. And so before I would make a soup, mm. I would create a mandala out of the vegetables that I had chopped up together. Beautiful. And it was just another way of inviting beauty in um, that nourished a different part of my being. Well, I think that's really wonderful. And of course, you're using the right side of your brain as well, which is all about creativity. And I mean, that's part of our brains we generally don't use often enough. And, you know, just as the space between notes creates music, as you were saying, creating space in our lives to slow down and, and, and see the positive and make time to appreciate the, the beauty that's all around us here today. Uh, it, it's a wonderful way to, to build a more positive, optimistic mindset and allow you to feel more content and, and more present. And it really is a practice. And just like with music, how you get better at mm. the piano, if you practice that. I've um, In a lot of my workshops, you know, I when I start working with people, sometimes at first it's hard for them to find gratitude. It's like they can't find the thread. And but it gets easier and easier and easier with practice. And, and, and before you know it, you know, you'll have so many things to say that you're grateful for because you'll be mm. tuning yourself to notice the way that the light enters your bedroom and you'll, you'll mm. be paying attention. And, and so I think so often it's easy to become a sleepwalker in our life where we're just mm. rushing through things. So just having those moments to pause and say, what is beautiful right here and right now is, is really transformative. I'm reminded of T.S. Eliot. I, I think he said something like, you know, I, I should never seek, seek from exploration. And at the end of all my journeying and exploring, I'll arrive back where I started and I'll see it for the very first time. That's right. That's from Little Gidding. That's the poem that saved my life when I was a 16-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. So to, to the, the opportunity being that we can all choose to see things through new eyes. And uh, I think you're, you're, you're saying that so, so well. Kayleen, can I ask you, obviously, Mary Magdalene is somebody that you've you've researched and you've 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 a big interest in. Yes. Yeah, I did my doctoral dissertation in mythological studies, looking at her image um, over all of these centuries, not just in text, but also in image and in music. And one of the things that interested me um, about her um, was how many different stories there were. Um, that mm. over the centuries, um, from a sort of from a Jungian depth psychology perspective, she seemed to be someone who encompassed the totality of what it was to be human. And in some of the texts that didn't make it into the Bible, but were recovered much later and were part of um, teachings for the first 400 years, there's a word, anthropos, that's used to describe her, which means fully human. And I think we can see this in so much of the artwork symbolically about her because there's many images like, for example, by Georges de Latour in which she's in darkness and she's actually holding a skull, but she's looking at a candle at light. And if you think about those two symbols, you know, she's somebody who mm. really holds both elements or what William Blake, the poet, would have called both hands full. You know, she's present for suffering and sorrow um, in those stories that we have from the Christian tradition. She's the disciple who doesn't run away, but who is there present for the suffering and the death of one that she loves. But she's also the first person to see with new eyes the new possibilities and to be able to articulate and to share a message of hope when all seems lost. And so even for people who have no religious um, orientation whatsoever, I think she can be a very powerful archetypal figure to ask ourselves the question, what would it be like to be a human being capable of being fully present for the suffering of the world and to be able to see with new eyes the hope and the beauty and to be able to speak and name that with courage and conviction. So for me, I think she represents what I would call an archetypal figure of courage and compassion wed together. And she can be, for many people, a very profound guide 
in this journey, this difficult journey of what it is to be human, to to let ourselves grieve and sorrow. So many of the depictions are of her weeping and crying. But also she was the patron saint of contemplatives because she's associated with silence, with going into the cave of the heart and with music. Her legends in France have her lifted up by the songs of angels seven times a day. So if you think of that in sort of a dreamlike uh, way, courage, compassion, music and silence, those are all things that I think are, are profoundly important to nurturing the interior life. And one of the many reasons why I think she's been such a guide across the centuries. It's amazing, you know, um, St. Francis, Mother uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, Julian of Norwich, um, Catherine of Siena all took her as their mystic mother um, and great, had great strength in actually hoping to follow in her footsteps to have this embodied sense of courage and compassion. So that's one of the reasons why I think she's important for our time. Um, whether or not you are affiliated with a, a religion, I find that she speaks to people of all walks of life because of that capacity you know, to stay present. I think she should often be the patron saint of hospice workers. What is it to companion someone through the death and dying process mm -hmm. with love? You know, with profound mm -hmm. love and faithfulness. And I think that's a quality that maybe we all aspire to. And I think they're two wonderful words, uh, courage and compassion. You know, compassion, you know, to lead from your heart and to really reach out to support others and also to reach back and support yourself. Uh, you know, self-compassion is, is so important uh, in the world. And, and of course, to match that with courage, uh, to own your own truth and, and to live your own life. Yeah. And, and, you know, like her teacher, Jesus, before her, and Francis after her, you know, she seems to have, have known, like, when was the time to go out and take action in the world? And when was the time to withdraw to this cave of the heart for contemplation and renewal? And, um, you know, the French legends have her first teaching and preaching in Provence and then withdrawing through to a forest in La Saint-Baume where she would be immersed in contemplative practice. And I think that that rhythm is sort of like an in-breath and an out-breath that everyone um, needs to find for their own well-being. You know, we are called into action in the world and then we're called to care for ourselves, as you said, for self-care. And each of us may find a different way of doing that, but to have that contemplative place where we can renew is deeply important. Yeah, I think that's really important, you know, to that we you have an inner world and inner life and you need to really take good care of your mind and your spirit and your heart. And, you know, that really is the essence of self-care. And there's there's always a kind of a balance, isn't there, between what's going on in your outer world and what's going on in your inner world. And in a way, there is that kind of sense of interconnection. I know, Kayleen, that you have a real passion for interconnectedness across time yes. and across disciplines. Um, yes. I mean, they used to say, you know, the, we were all connected to each other on the planet by seven degrees of separation, or maybe you'd actually think it's much closer than that. Oh, I think it's much closer than that. <laughs> I absolutely think it's much closer than that. You know, and I think in a, to go back to Little Gidding, I think that that poem is a great example of that, that I love that poem. Mm. And then over the next few decades, you know, I developed all of these other interests. So, for example, I was passionate about Dante's Divine Comedy. I discovered the works of John of the Cross, the great Spanish poet, and Julian of Norwich. Um, I was really interested for a while in Eastern mythology and Vedic philosophy, mm. you know, as, as other pathways. Um, and all of, all of that material, and of course, at the same time, I'm still loving Beethoven, yes. my first love, my first hero. <laughs> and so, you know, it took me about 20 years before I discovered this, but I discovered that so many of the things that I love most about that poem, Little Gidding, actually weren't by T.S. Eliot. It, it was T.S. Eliot referring to other things. So for example, at the end of Little Gidding, when he says, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Wow. 
He's actually quoting Julian of Norwich, the first yes. woman to write in the English language in the 14th century. And so you have all of those threads woven together there. And the more I uh, follow and really deeply research the history of, of the arts, you find that it's what I call a conversation across the centuries. So I've taught classes, for example, on Dante's Divine Comedy through the sculpture of Rodin, because Rodin spent 30 years of his life obsessed with Dante, trying to bring um, Dante's vision to life. And just an extraordinary number of his sculptures started off being images that were going to be part of the gates of hell to depict Dante's Inferno. Um, so those two are so different. And then you find like with Gustav Klimt that he ends up connecting with the Egyptian mythology and the tree of life and that the um, the plays of Dionysus had this amazing importance to him. And so you find those woven together. And there were a number of uh, histories of women that I was just really intrigued by certain women and then lo and behold I find that they're connected to everybody so Lou Andrea Salome who's a who's a student of Freud's but is Rilke's love and mentor in many ways who introduces him to Tolstoy and meanwhile she's also connected to so the, it just goes on and on and on the way that it's all connected and I think that that's the creative life you know it's um it's a lot, I guess, like what I'm learning about mycelium or tree roots in nature, that they're, they are woven together mm -hmm. in the depths in this profound way. And I certainly have found in my own life as a creative being that um, connecting to other disciplines across time can become an incredible source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. My big project this year is actually writing a um, it's a whole very large suite of piano pieces inspired by Vincent van Gogh's paintings and his letters to his brother Theo. And this is going to be a multimedia performance experience. But for me, like as a composer, um, art is often the starting point for a conversation. So sitting with the life of an artist or sitting with a work of art and then feeling how my heart opens to that becomes the doorway for music to come through. And I just know this experience goes both ways. Georgia O'Keeffe, the American painter, would listen to music while she painted. I think Stravinsky was one of her favorites. And, and that synesthesia experience is so fruitful. It's just so profound. And, um, it's one of been my been one of my great delights as a cultural historian is to find all the ways that things are connected, and I think it makes it so rich, so juicy, to discover those connections. Well, absolutely, and you know, for me, I I love to spend time in nature, and it's when uh, you know I I feel so much more creative, and it's when I often get my ideas walking silently in nature, just listening to the birds. And I think you're right in terms of the broader arts. We can we can learn so much from all of these other disciplines and it really can enrich our everyday experience. Yeah, I mean, just as one example, you know, in the great salon culture of Vienna, um, there was a, a, a salon in which scientists and artists and poets and theater people would all come together, the salon of, of Berta Zuckerkendall. And Gustav Klimt, the great painter, got very interested in what was emerging as microbiology and looking through a microscope at cellular formations. And it was from that experience going to one of these scientists labs and looking through the microscope that he was inspired to start creating these geometric patterns that you find in the middle part of his period, like in, in paintings, for example, like the kiss that are so famous, where you see on the robes, these figures and these geometrical patterns. And it's just such a great aha when you realize like, oh, he was actually looking through a microscope at cellular biology and that inspired his artistic vision. And I think that those kinds of conversations are so important for, um, for creativity and for for allowing inspiration to come. I'm, I'm just such a passionate advocate of getting together people of different disciplines to share what they're excited about because 
it, it creates this, this amazing environment in which everyone leaves with, I'll use a California phrase, an expanded consciousness, but with a new source of, of inspiration to see the world in many more facets. And that, that to me is so exciting. And the individuals that I'm most drawn to, like our shared favorite, Hildegard of Bingen, are people who didn't see them as being opposites. You know, she saw science and music and poetry and you know gardening with nature all of that was an expression of an underlying unity of goodness and she could celebrate it in all of its facets and i long for a world where that's so where we can celebrate the science the scientist and the mystic and the artist and the musician as all being these facets of of one amazing jewel of humanity absolutely well i'll second that Kaylin, you lead pilgrimages, which is quite an unusual thing to do in the 21st century. Um, you know, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? And, you know, what's the difference between going on an actual pilgrimage with you as opposed to maybe staying at home and watching something online or just, just reading about it in a book or something? Yeah, well, I would definitely say that as a scholar, there are things that I have only been able to learn by going to certain places that, you know, I have three master's degrees and a PhD, so I've spent a lot of time in libraries. But every time I've gone on a pilgrimage and immersed myself in what I would call a quest to learn things, I discovered things that I would never have been able to find sitting in a library. And part of that is, is like l the literal connections that happen and sometimes really surprising connections that happen. But there's also a heart knowing about walking in the footsteps of somebody that you, you learn in a different way, in this deeply embodied way. And, and I would go so far as to say that every one of my pilgrimages was worth at least, you know, one week was worth one year of graduate school. That's how much I was able to learn that I never would have been able to learn any other way. Um, and then it also fills up the heart cup as opposed to the head tank, you know, it, it you feel it in a very different way and and it lives in you you know in this deeply sensory way i think we know from from memory that if if we're just memorizing words and they don't penetrate into the depth of visit the limbic system you know that that the memories will fade but if we actually you know taste touch feel sense our move to tears it goes into a very different layer in our memory bank and we won't forget it it will be a part of us it will actually become almost a cellular memory and so i feel that so deeply you know there's certain birds for example that sing in the woods where saint francis of assisi would go for his contemplation and when i hear that bird song i'm immediately brought back to that place you know there are there's that sense memory that's a different part of of the 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 intellect you know that's profound um so yes, it's very different. I love watching documentaries on film and I actually during the pandemic when my pilgrimages were closed down, you know, we couldn't travel for two years. Um, I tried to capture them by offering virtual pilgrimages where I would take everything I had learned and present them online, but also try to make them embodied experience by giving people recipes or scents that they could, could you know, things that they could bring it to life. But um, it is a profound way of being and to go with an intention you know i i have led you know a dozen pilgrimages in the footsteps of mary magdalene but also some in saint francis and and one that i'm i'm crafting right now is in the footsteps of t.s Eliot in england for 2023 and to go to the places where he wrote the poem and to actually see ah that's the white hedgerow and oh this is the chapel where he kneeled you know it brings something to life in such a different way and you know to walk in the footsteps of bach or beethoven and and you just feel their presence and you feel you 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 get very close to them as, as a sense of what their lived life was. And so for me, that that is one of those moves that where it goes from being a head learning to being full embodied heart experience that that never leaves, that never leaves. It's different than being a tourist. Yeah. yeah. So it's like learning by doing and learning by being. It's really experiencing it. Yeah. And, and that's part of my quest is, you know, I love these figures so much that I want to I want to be close to them. You know, I want to feel what they felt. I want to um, see what they saw in some respects, you know, and and 
it just touches such a deeper part of me um, that is really profound and life-changing. So am I right in saying, Kayleen, that that's your purpose in the world is to really walk in the footsteps of your heroines and heroes that have gone before you? I think that's part of it. Um, Sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, in Greek mythology, they have people whose jobs it is to keep the flame burning perpetually. Yes. And so in some ways, I feel like that's that's a huge part of this is like mm. I feel so deeply connected and I just I just love them so much. All of these figures and, you know, from Pythagoras to Beethoven to Bach to Dante, you know, these these beings of wisdom. And I want to keep their memories alive and to share their stories because I know in my own life and in the lives of so many of the hundreds and now thousands of students that I've taught that some it can make all the difference in the world, you know, to have an image. You know, the poet Rilke said, you know, our future must enter us as an image long before it can happen. And if we have an image of someone who has come through darkness or suffering with resilience, as Beethoven did, for example, it creates that neural pathway for us to imagine a possibility for ourselves. And that's why I think that this kind of history is so important. You know, an embodied, heart-centered history is so important to keep the memory of resilience alive and to feed our imaginations so that we can say, there was someone who stepped into their fullness. So I can step into my fullness too. It might not look like anybody in my family. It might not look like it even fits with my own particular culture, but here's somebody who found their truth and their path and had the courage to follow it and look what a difference it made in the world. That's my hope to pass on. Yeah, so what you're saying is that, you know, each person can become the hero or heroine in their own story by living their life with courage and compassion. Yes, and then to find their way, and their way will be unique, to find their way of bringing forth what's inside of them Yes. with an act of creativity. Obviously, health is very important to you, Kayleen. You know, how do you stay healthy yourself? Well, I have a number of different practices. I like how you said, you know, that you attend to mind, body, spirit. You know, all of these are part of that great wheel. So from... For myself, my morning actually begins, I love doing a yoga practice each day. I find that that's very, very helpful in centering. And nature is so important. I'm lucky enough to live very close to uh, many hiking trails in the redwood trees. So I try every day to take an hour's walk. You know, sometimes I, I have to do it as a working walk where I put on, you know, lectures that I'm listening to while I'm walking through the forest. But to have that so that I have that piece of my physical well-being taken care of. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I eat a very healthy, super conscious diet, you know, typical Northern California, organic and largely vegetarian and uh, don't drink, you know, those sorts yes. of things um, to tend to my body. Um, and then I have the practice of contemplation and meditation each day. And then I, I really feel like, um, one of the most important things is to be very careful about what you're putting in your mind and what you're consuming mm -hmm. with media. Um, and to realize that especially in our own time, so much of the news um, and the reports there, if they're not downright toxic, they're certainly overwhelming. So mm -hmm. being very judicious and careful and one of the guides that I have is, again, is Hildegard. You know, she was asked, what is the greatest virtue? At one point, she uses that wonderful phrase, veriditas, mm -hmm. the, the greening, which I understand is, you know, the thing that makes you feel like nature, green and juicy. Yes. And that the greatest vice is ariditas, what makes you dry mm -hmm. or dusty or bitter or hard of heart. And that's just such a great question to ask yourself as you're going through anything, you know, whether it's the food that you're eating, you know, like, okay, chocolate cake tastes really good when I first put it in my mouth, but an hour later, how am I feeling? <laughs> you know, to ask yourself, am I filled with life and vitality or is there something amiss? So that's a, just a really good question for discernment, both with things that we literally put in our mouth, but also things that we put in our ears and our eyes, you know, what we watch, how does it make us feel? Does it make us feel filled with hope and, and vitality and possibility or do we feel crushed? 
And I, I'm really careful about that. I gave away my television um, the year I was pregnant because I had read so many studies about the, the, the deleterious effects on children of advertising. So to be judicious and discerning around that. Well, I think that's a great way of looking at your health habits. You know, are, are, are these habits adding to my vitality or are they detracting from my vitality? I think vitality is a wonderful word that embraces that interconnection of mind, body, emotion and spirit. It really does speak to all aspects of it. Absolutely. And then to nourish yourself with as many, many examples of the good and the beautiful and the true that you can find. Absolutely. Could you give our listeners three take homes for a resilient mind, Kayleen? Sure. Uh, the first thing I would say is to go back to that phrase, to bring forth what is in you and create. Mm -hmm. To create and to let yourself play in that sense of creation without the expectation of how it's going to look at the outside, but to have the mind of a little child to just find a way of playing. And that's what the nature mandalas are a big part of. And the second thing for well-being for a resilient mind is to surround yourself with examples, both hopefully those people in your life, but also people throughout history and even literary heroines and heroines that are examples of the kinds of qualities you want to invite in. There was a, a great mystic and theologian, John Cassian, who said, be like a bee and gather nectar from many flowers who exemplify goodness. And so I would encourage people to do that. And the, the paying attention to what makes you green and juicy, what makes you dry, dusty, and bitter. And all of those fall into spending time with nature. Nature is the great, great teacher, the great, great balm. Wonderful, Kayleen. And finally, for you, what's the meaning of life? Oh, the meaning of life for me, the meaning of my life for me, is to find a way to take the things that seem like opposites, to bring them into harmony and to have that be a doorway into a creative celebration towards love. Well, I think that's a lovely way to end our conversation, Kayleen. Keep leading, keep learning, keep inspiring, keep being a light and your own purpose in the world, not just for yourself, but many others. Kaylee Nasbo, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being in the doctor's chair. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.